Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What's going on, ladies and gents? Thanks for tuning in. My name is Samuel Plan. I am your man with the plan, and you are listening to Sports Entertainment is Dead. Welcome to the show, ladies and gents. Thanks for tuning in. You may have realised last week that there was no edition of Sports Entertainment is Dead. I am very sorry about that. I had some unexpected technical issues at the nth hour as I was trying to upload the show. If you listen to the right side of the pond last Friday, you'll know that if you follow me on social media too. Uh, But we're back. We're back on track and hopefully there'll be no technical issues this week. This show will go out. I did record a show last week, but I guess it's just going to gather dust for the rest of time. So with that being said, do please, if you missed not last week, but the week before's edition of SCID, do go check that out on demand. It is still available, as indeed are all the great shows here at Lords of Pain Radio, including, of course, Aftershock. Steve went solo for the first time since I left the show at WrestleMania for Money in the Bank's live post-show podcast you could still check that out and please be aware as well folks that we are going to very shortly as soon as next week i believe be moving to a new home but you can keep an eye on all the great shows at lords of pain radio and on lords of pain itself for more details on that it's still going to be readily available through lordsofpain.net all the great podcasts that you know and we should be having some new shows coming your way sometime soon hopefully so keep your eyes peeled so lots of great things and exciting new things happening here at lords of pain radio we hope we can continue to rely on your ongoing listenership and we will hope to continue to do justice to the attention that you pay us good folks. So on with the show then and I have to say that I approached this week's show on a little bit of a downer ladies and gents because Money in the Bank was not a great pay-per-view as far as I was concerned and indeed drove me to the decision to say that's the last time I will ever watch a WWE pay-per-view in full until the product starts to improve. Nonetheless, it is tradition at Sports Entertainment is dead to follow a pay-per-view Sunday with a performance art review and of course I saw enough of the show to be able to follow with that tradition and indeed give you something of a performance art review this week. I'm not going to be covering everything on the show from last Sunday. First of all, let me say that I have absolutely no intention of covering in any great depth the main event, which of course was the men's Money in the Bank ladder match, which woefully saw Sami Zayn, who's been doing well since he came back. His character's taken an interesting turn and the storyline he's got going on about the universe rejecting him and him being more than happy to remind the universe themselves uh, of just how morally corrupt they are and has been doing some interesting things gaining a little bit of of worth he was sidelined because of course we needed to retroactively cram Brock Lesnar in for the sake of a surprise and to revisit once again the ongoing toxicity of his presence at the top of the card because Seth Rollins wasn't involved in that match to counteract the negativity of Brock Lesnar being involved in it and because I have no great love for multi-man ladder matches anyway as anyone who has followed me over the years will know I've decided that I'm not going to even touch upon what I thought was a car crash of a match anyway and made only worse with the exclamation point 
of saying Brock Lesnar still isn't gone. I don't know why we should be surprised by that, incidentally, given the great things going on uh, over at AEW already, before they've even so much as uh, deposited their first pay-per-view. But nonetheless, that's what it is. So, I'm going to ignore that match. But I'm not going to ignore the opening Money in the Bank ladder match, which of course was the women's take on it. Now, Money in the Bank is a very interesting beast from a performance art perspective, because you get to tackle it as a genre. If you followed the show from the very beginning, you'll know my thoughts on the benefits of tackling a, a, a match from the viewpoint of genre, which is to say that you get a better idea of why fans may react to it the way they do, because you're tasked essentially with trying to uncover the common traits of both the best received and worst received matches of any given type, in this case Money in the Bank, that will give you a set of common criteria which you can then use to define that specific genre. And when you have that in mind, you're then able, I think, to better assess why people react the way they react to a certain match or a certain iteration of a match or a certain take on a match. And I thought that the women's Money in the Bank ladder match, in one sense, couldn't really be criticised all that much because it very much stuck to its genre tropes. A lot of stunts... You know, a lot of kind of um, artificially created set pieces that didn't really, when you started to think about them, make a lot of logical sense. For example, Ember Moon and uh, I can't remember who else it was holding up the ladder while someone like Naomi climbed up it rather than just dropping it there and then, as you would think the instinctive reaction would be. So it exhibited a lot of those. Those are common traits of this genre. I'm not holding them against this particular match, but it does mean that this particular version of the match was never going to be winning any great plaudits from myself. I think it's going to have its fair share of fans, though, because Money in the Bank as a genre is inherently very popular. That car crash kind of wrestling, that whiz-bang special effects heavy kind of wrestling match always goes down well with the fans and indeed always gets a nice hot reception from the live crowd and this last Sunday's opener was no different. One of the things that we can assess the quality of any given version of a Money in the Bank match by though, especially one that is as married to its genre as this one was, is the originality in the stunts that it chooses. Sometimes you'll get Money in the Bank matches that are that are as married to its genre tropes as last Sunday's women's version was. Uh, but on top of that, also, we'll do nothing new. We'll do nothing original with the stunts that it decides to put out there. And in that sense, becomes even more underwhelming to someone like me, who isn't necessarily enamoured with this genre in the first place, because you've seen it all before. And while you could accuse those matches of being very literate, genre literate, in terms of knowing exactly what's worked in the past and deciding to throw that out there. And some of them even do that in a, in a way that manages to marry them all up in a nice sort of jigsaw. The picture, once you've finished the jigsaw, looks quite nice because of the structuralism of it. This, uh, this particular match avoided doing that altogether, I think, to its benefit. And it did throw out some original... Ideas. There was a, a fun little set piece with Naomi uh, sort of diving between ladders and, and uh, doing the splits to avoid them, quite cinematic in its style. Particularly in this day and age where so much of professional wrestling seems to be kind of carefully choreographed dance steps, I thought that that was 
uh, in one sense, very timely a take on a stunt in a Money in the Bank uh, ladder match, and also a very clever one, because not clever in the sense that it came off as clever. Indeed, I thought it came off as quite contrived, as so much of this particular version of the match did. But clever in the sense that it's going to play to the fashion of the day, play to the uh, the, the the likes of the modern wrestling audience. I have seen some positive criticism of this match online, so obviously I think to a certain degree at least that kind of an approach worked. Unfortunately, not everything else did. There was a curious subplot, I'm not sure how put on it was and how real it was, between Carmella and Mandy Rose with Carmella's leg getting injured that watched as some kind of subpar effort to relive the superb stories told in other multi-man matches, most specifically the injury that Owen Hart suffers in the Canadian Stampede Magnum Opus main event of the 10-man tag team match. And as a result, not only was it awkwardly executed in a way that made it feel uncomfortably like a shoot, so much so that it was distracting and I think shattered your suspension of disbelief but it also was immediately laboured because of the fact that you were immediately thinking of more interesting and impressive versions of that particular story being executed previously. The eventual conclusion was somewhat anticlimactic as well. The way that Sonya Deville got involved was a nice touch and very true to her character and to Mandy Rose's character. But the fact that it was Bailey of all people who managed to get the last laugh with a bit of a silly moment where Sonya Deville and Mandy Rose just stared her in the face without grabbing the briefcase, which seems to be a plot hole occurring more and more within the genre, I have to say. But also... We've been in a situation with the women's divisions on both brands for such a long time, with their narrow focus on the four horsewomen in particular, with the addition of Ronda Rousey, Nia Jax and Alexa Bliss, that it feels like talents, so many of the talents of which were involved in this match, that have been previously neglected by WWE in terms of storyline and in terms of character development, would have been just as just as well suited to that final victorious moment as Bailey was, if not indeed better suited for it. I would have liked to have seen Ember Moon be given that opportunity. I think it would have played even nicer into her character as it did Bailey's, because there was very much a, a sense of aggression about the conclusion and the way that the protagonist won that I think wasn't necessarily true to Bailey's character that's so smiley and nicey. Uh, and indeed the way that that would then pan out later in the night around Becky Lynch's story. Again, I think that whole kind of escapade would have suited Emma Moon more than it did uh, Bailey, because Emma Moon has that character of a warrior spirit. But nonetheless, it, it, it was what it was. There were worse choices to emerge as the victor. Bailey did a, a good job in her own right. So in the end, I would have to say that as a piece of genre wrestling, it was particularly uninspiring, being both safe and disappointing in equal degree. And indeed, as a curtain jerker, it was, again, very much predictable. Very much, you know, I predicted that this would open the show going in. Indeed, it did. It did a serviceable job of doing so. But it showed no real bravery. It showed no mastery. And it was it was a very ordinary and plain version of the match. The most noticeable aspects of which were its worst aspects. So, not an inspiring start to the evening and one that certainly set me in a bad mood. It took the show a little while to recover from that as well. I wasn't fond of the 
again, sudden conclusion to the Samoa Joe Rey Mysterio match that again felt very awkward and it feels like we've been seeing a lot of those kind of conclusions recently. Daniel Bryan in The Miz in Australia and of course Becky Lynch and Ronda Rousey at WrestleMania more recently. So wasn't a huge fan of that though the beatdown afterwards was done in as typically magnetic a fashion as you would expect from a performer of Samoa Joe's capabilities. And the less said about the cage match the better a match that shouldn't have happened that I think left a bit of a sour taste on their far superior and surprisingly overachievement of an effort in their false count anywhere match at WrestleMania. But eventually we found our way to Becky Lynch who undoubtedly was one of the more interesting aspects of the show, one of the more exciting aspects of the show going into the pay-per-view. And her first match with Lacey Evans was pretty much what you might have expected it to be. I think it was a little too soon for Lacey Evans to be given the weight of that kind of a role in a production like this, to come off as a, a convincing threat to someone who has been as established and as Uh, heatedly established it must be said as Becky Lynch has and I'm not sure that she was able to live up to that expectation and I feel quite sorry for her because of that the character hasn't had any development since it was introduced bizarrely many months ago on WWE television Uh, and I think that that hampered what the two were able to accomplish in the ring as well Nonetheless, it was a decent enough aesthetic and and it didn't overstay its welcome and those aspects of it should be applauded because so many times we can recriminate particularly main event special attraction matches like this in WWE for indeed very much overstaying their welcome. And while Lacey Evans wasn't quite able to live up to, I think, the heights of the expectations that had been unfairly placed upon her by a company that seems to be in a bit of a rush to establish her as someone... Uh, as somewhat of a presence in the company, it should be said that she didn't stink up the joint either. Sure, her performance wasn't superlative or transcendent in the way that might be getting, you know, kind of uh, clamoured about in, in, in months and years to come, but it was perfectly serviceable. It was a decent enough job. She didn't embarrass herself. She didn't hamper the, the quality of the match too much. And the match itself was decent enough. Working the arm of Becky Lynch, it had a solid and sound psychological foundation in that sense. You couldn't argue with the clean narrative that it decided to pursue. And thankfully, the correct winner seemed to come out victorious on the opposite end. But we knew that this was really going to be the first chapter of a wider story. And the way the match ended was a curious notation towards the manner in which WWE's fictional universe has seemingly descended into chaos over the last few months. Primarily because Charlotte comes out and she's, you know, she's got a smile on her face, there's an eagerness in her gait, uh, and she sort of silently, and I say that because she didn't have a microphone, challenges Becky Lynch to go there and then. Becky Lynch was celebrating a victory over Lacey Evans already, making her way to the back, which seemed to flagrantly disregard precedent where we've had dual title defences in the past that have always, almost exclusively always, come one immediately after the other. And one wonders how it is that someone can, just on a pay-per-view that we know has matches scheduled in a specific order, just march out with any backing of an authority figure and start demanding a title match there and then. One wonders about the 
the the intelligence of Becky Lynch accepting it there and then, though of course it does play into a hot-headed character, so you can't complain about that too much. But it does nonetheless present issues and questions that could have easily been avoided about the way in which the administrative side of WWE works. I'm not saying that we should have that addressed in lengthy promos, because God knows such a, uh, such a thing is boring. But it pays dividends to maintain a sense of continuity silently in the background so that we don't come, become preoccupied with these irrelevances. Because when we become preoccupied with these irrelevances, that alone speaks to how there's nothing really interesting going on in storyline terms to keep us from thinking about those things. But I'm going to carry on talking about Becky Lynch's match with Charlotte after an advert break. We've got to pay some bills, as my friend on Aftershock Steve always says. So I'm going to take us to a quick ad break here. Stick with me and we will continue my performance art review of Elements of Money in the Bank 2019. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for sticking with me, guys. We are, of course, talking about my Money in the Bank 2019 performance art review, avoiding any talk of whatever Brock Lesnar was involved in and focusing instead as much as we can on the elements of the show that were least offensive or indeed best. I'm in the middle of talking about the story surrounding Becky Lynch, which I thought overall was effectively executed. The first part was weaker than the second part, but of course the benefit of something like this is that so often it can become greater than the sum of its parts, and I think it's fair to say that's exactly what happened. The match with Charlotte itself after the 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 way that it kind of got introduced, presenting a few issues, I really enjoy, enjoyed though. And I think what they did very well, and speaks very much to the intelligence and savvy of the two performers involved, was utilise the unique setup of the match to do something fresh. Charlotte and Becky have wrestled each other so many times at this stage, having become a franchise feud in many ways, which is a term I've just invented, but quite like, so I'm going to use that more means that they were facing a bit of an obstacle to overcome in order to do something fresh and original, take a new slant that we hadn't seen before in the ring. And they used the the way that the match got introduced, the fact that Becky had already defended the title, very much to their advantage. The match carried with it a sense of great urgency. Charlotte performed with a sense of great zeal and ingratiating arrogance that this was playing entirely in her favour. And the fact that Lacey Evans made her presence felt at the back end to allow Charlotte to pick up the victory made a lot of sense. It stuck sticks in the craw, but for my money, sticks in the craw in exactly the way that it should. So props from a performance and an execution point of view, props from an aesthetic and tonal point of view, and props for the sense of shared universe used to introduce the, the next stage of this story, which of course was the exciting epilogue, that I think it's fair to say, with a sensible head on your shoulders, you could have predicted coming a mile off. Again, the fact that Becky was defending two titles leaned heavily towards a cash-in on the nine. But sometimes the obvious route is the best route to take, and this is one case where that was very much the case, and I was relieved to see that WWE did it. But I also liked the way that it was done. It was executed in a a messy fashion, but a purposefully messy fashion. Chaotic is how it felt, and chaos often wields results 
for savvy performers in WWE's fictional universe, and that's exactly what happened. Bailey saw her opportunity and decided to cash in, but I also think it's worth taking a second to pass comment and compliment Bailey for the way that she executed the cash in. Bailey has always been presented as a morally upstanding character, someone who doesn't take well to deceit or deception, and who wouldn't necessarily be all too eager to win a championship through as ugly a means as an opportunistic Money in the Bank cash in. And while she did eventually cash in and pick up the title victory, much to the pleasure and the electrifying response of the live crowd to demonstrate how effective a moment it was, Bailey executed it well by demonstrating a conflict of conscience as she seemed to weigh up cashing in. Usually you'd pass that off as opportunism, as someone wondering whether this was going to be a mistake or not, something tactical. But with Bailey, because of the nature of her character, it took on a more moralistic vibe. And I really appreciated that. It gave you something to sink your teeth into a little bit more and lent the moment extra weight that it might otherwise not have done. I was also happy to see that they eschewed the temptation to have Charlotte kick out of the first few moves that got uh, sort of landed on her, which has become a bit of a trend and a bit of a predictable one. So it avoided cliche while somehow being predictable, but at the same time executing itself well. Quite an accomplishment when you think about it. And also provided up to that moment the most exhilarating moment of the night. Certainly Becky Lynch's story last Sunday was one of the better aspects of the general pay-per-view. Of course, you won't be surprised to hear me say that what I thought was by far and away the best aspect of the pay-per-view, excuse me, I'm choking on my words, was the Seth Rollins-AJ Styles Universal Championship match. I was fuming that it got bumped down the card because we had to have Brock Lesnar pick up another victory over full-time performers. And indeed, if there's a metaphor to be had, then I can't think of a better one than that observation. Nonetheless, Seth Rollins once again, alongside AJ Styles, proved why it was a criminal act to bump them down the card, because their match was what I would describe as effortlessly brilliant. They didn't seem to have to work particularly hard to put together something particularly magnificent. While you could argue that the match felt a little thin on the emotional stakes because of the lack of genuine story development heading into it, it had very much been a kind of typical narrative of competitiveness getting the better of two men, and indeed Bret Hart versus Mr. Perfect at King of the Ring 1993 remains very much the, the, the measuring stick for that. It nonetheless was able to execute that sense of competitiveness and that sense of dangerously hostile competitiveness in the ring on the night. There was a lot of talk about them being the two best tacticians in WWE heading into it, and what you got was a very tactical game between the two. But what I liked so much about it is that oftentimes, particularly prevalent with AJ Styles' library in WWE, you can they the matches when they're done on this kind of tactical level, can get a little bit caught up on counters. Counters to counters to counters. And while they're always exciting, and I'm always happy to engage with a match like that, I feel like I've seen a little bit too many of them. And what can happen when you see too many of something is, of course, they all start to merge into one. Everything becomes like one match. Key example is NXT TakeOvers. I'm not saying that that's a particular example of counter-for-counter-for-counter type matches, but it is a particular example of how pretty much every major match on a takeover feels very much like the one that came before it. I wouldn't be able to distinguish for you which matches happened on which takeovers over the last four or five years, because to me they all merge into one. 
and the only means I've got of, of, of grasping some kind of chronology is who was champion at the time. There's no way I could place you a specific match on a specific takeover event because they're all like for like. Thankfully, Seth and AJ showed a collective ability, and yes, I'm going to give Seth the majority, the lion's share of the credit for this, to adapt and do something slightly different. There were counters in there, and many of them were very exhilarating. One in particular that I loved was AJ's ability to counter the, uh, I forget what it's called, the ripcord knee. It's not called that, it's called, oh, the revelation knee, or, or revolution knee, something like that. Uh, just by simply grasping Seth's leg. And there was a momentary pause for you to kind of go, oh shit, as the consequences of what had happened uh, kind of uh, settled in. And then was able to hit that that ugly-looking reverse Ushiguroshi, I think it was. I'm not very good with the names of moves. I'm a what-a-maneuver kind of guy. So if I get that wrong, forgive me. Feel free to correct me. But it was a wonderful moment. And of course, we'd be remiss not to talk about the moment of the night which was the sublime counter of the curb stomp into a Styles Clash. A very dangerous counter in a, in a real-world sense, but one that came off like velvet wrestling. I haven't seen something like that since Kurt Angle countered the moonsault into the ankle lock in his Iron Man match with Shawn Michaels on Monday Night Raw in 2005. So kudos to Seth and AJ on that front. But like most Seth Rollins matches, and this is one reason why I adore the man's work so much... It just felt right. Everything seemed to happen the way it should have done. The transitions felt natural. The moves happening felt logical. It felt like they had to do that move at that particular time. And this is such an intangible quality to a match, or at least something that you need to have real expert knowledge in to really be able to vocalize your appreciation of and the reason why it worked so well in an effective manner that I can't do it here. All I can say is that it just feels right. It has a sense of indescribable but instantly identifiable internal logic that makes everything feel very real and everything feel very purposeful. And it's the quality that always marked out Bret Hart's best matches. It's not about showing off by showing the world what you can do, which again is a bad habit I think a lot of performers, particularly of this generation, fall into. Here's looking to you, Johnny Gargano. But instead, controversial I know, uh, but instead it's about simply structuring a match in the right way, telling your story patiently, letting, letting it unfold. To me, I would characterize this particular clash as a structuralist's dream. What I mean by that is that well, let me take the term structuralism. This is a term I've used to describe wrestling as it was sort of in the 1980s in particular, sort of post-Hulkamania, kind of pre-WrestleMania 6. In that it wasn't about the variety of moves on show or the sophistication of the moves being executed, but it was about eliciting a far greater reaction than we see even today by simply structuring the simplest of moves in the right way. Structuralism was in the ascendancy during the Golden Age because it was a time of simplicity in the ring. And I don't say that as a means of offence. What I mean is, you know, they weren't they weren't throwing out Ushigurushis and they weren't throwing out Yorinagis and they weren't throwing out the kitchen sink like reverse superplexes into reverse falcon arrows. And I'm throwing that criticism in there just so you know I'm not being biased towards Seth completely. Um, but it was about, I'm going to knee you in the back of the head. I'm going to hit you with a double axe handle. I'm going to sweep your leg. But doing it at just the right point in the match 
so that psychologically it stands out and it feels like the pendulum swinging back and forth, which would create magic. Simple matches, effectively structured, and Macho Man Randy Savage was the master of it, as was Jake the Snake Roberts. And this felt like a structuralist's match in that sense, except for a postmodern one, because you did have those overly sophisticated moves. You did have the surplus of content that can sometimes threaten to strain disbelief, but it was structured in just the right way. It was structured in a very straightforward way, really. They started off relatively simple. In the middle portion of the match, they started to hit the bigger moves, like the the, the beautifully, uh, again, beautifully silken smooth moment where Seth counted something into a suicide dive then nailed a second one then went for a pinfall fantastic exchanges like that that started to escalate the action then once you got into the third quarter they began nailing their their instantly recognizable trademarks before going into the false finish with the big signature moves the big finishing moves very straightforward it told a very precise narrative that got you from point a to point b to point c a sort of quest narrative if you were talking about fantasy fiction for example Uh, and i i really appreciated that because again in this day and age where content is so heavy in so many matches and here's throw gargano out as another example here it feels like matches just go around in circles they get stuck in this perpetual cycle in the final third where everything's escalated and, and exacerbated and hysterical and then they expand that out 10 minutes longer than it should be which means that the finish automatically feels sudden because they've worked themselves to a point where they can't work down naturally or end naturally it's about ending it at that precise point when it should when you hit that highest note then fall to silence. And I thought that that's what Seth and AJ did so brilliantly. Then there was the handshake after, which was a nice character moment and laid the seeds for a future encounter between the two. And it felt it felt suitably held back as well. It felt like they were holding something in reserve so that when they do revisit this match, they can really explode and go with it. So I absolutely loved it. I, I adored the match. I thought it was a fantastic but simple, effective, universal championship match, the kind of thing Seth did time and time like clockwork when he was Intercontinental Champion. And indeed, if we see more of that from him as he continues on, hopefully for a long time as Universal Champion, at least till SummerSlam, I would hope, then the Universal Championship will start to get that rehabilitation that it desperately needs. Fingers crossed that's what we see. So a positive start to his Universal title reign, and for me, the big standout of the night, last Sunday night, I'm not going to cover most of anything else. I will say that the Kofi-Kevin Owens match was perfectly fine, but sort of underwhelmed me ultimately. I think that's largely because, again, of poor narrative development, poor character development since. But ultimately, all in, Money in the Bank, it it was a a fairly woeful pay-per-view. Vast swathes of the show were underwhelming, if not outright aggravating. And certainly while there was a positive hour in the middle, thanks to Becky and Charlotte and Bailey and AJ's and Seth particularly, ultimately I have to say that this was the pay-per-view that for the first time in many years made, made me make the decision to say, I'm not going to commit up to four hours of my time apiece on these shows anymore. I'm going to check out the bits that pique my interest, the odd one or two matches. Those will be the matches I then do a performance art review on this podcast going forward. Otherwise, the rest can sod off until there is a vast and radical change of quality in the week-to-week product. Because it's, I've got better things to do with my time. 
But not to end on a sour note, I am excited to see what happens next with uh, Seth Rollins in particular in the Universal Championship and where Becky Lynch goes, whether now she will be permanently on Monday Night Raw. I hope so. She probably will because what we know now about the relationship with Seth. So there's still still that silver lining, folks. There's still that little glimmer of quality in the middle of this forest of nightmares that WWE has now become. Looking forward to see where we go next with it all. I'm also looking forward to reading your opinions and hearing your opinions on Money in the Bank from last Sunday. So do make them known. You can do so through a whole host of ways. The best, fastest way is at LOP Plan on Twitter, but you can find me on Facebook as well. Just look me up at Samuel Plan. You can drop me a comment on lordsofpain.net or uh, on any of my columns or podcast posts. You can drop a comment on Blog Talk as well, at least for the next week. Then we will be moving to a new home, as I said. You could drop me an email if you want to. Samuel.plan101 at gmail.com is the place to do it if you're particularly old school. And best of all, and this is the one that I would most encourage you to do, you can sign up to LOP forums. And you can do that for free. There's no obligations or anything like that. It's free to sign up. A great community of folks. I say this every week because I genuinely believe it. It is the best corner of the IWC to be a part of. We've got threads on any WWE stuff, AEW stuff, NJPW, TNA, ROH. We've also got loads of threads on non-wrestling related stuff, music, film, books, you name it. There's a thread there. And we, of course, have our columns forum where anybody, and I mean anybody, can sign up and try their hand at column writing. The only prerequisite is you have to have an open mind and a willingness to take on constructive criticism to improve as a writer. And who knows, eventually, maybe you'll be writing for LordsOfPain.net's front page as well. With all that being said, I hope you enjoyed my performance art review of Elements of Money in the Bank 2019 last Sunday. I will, of course, be back next week. I'm debating maybe doing some kind of new generation product, if not to just distract myself from the woeful quality of WWE's current product. Maybe following uh, a Monday Night Raw, perhaps for a period between two pay-per-views or something like that, week by week for a while. I don't know, I'm weighing some options up. If you've got anything you'd like me to cover, let that be known as well. And indeed, if you've got any constructive criticism about my hosting or about this show, make that known to me as well. Just make sure it's, it's constructive and not too toxically worded because otherwise I'll just ignore you. I want to be, be better at this. I want to get better at this. I want to become the best damn podcast host going and I can only do that with your help. With all that being said, folks, I hope you have a lovely week. I will see you next Wednesday and stay safe. Hello, it is Ryan and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.